And thank you, Derek and Emily. Appreciate your help with the music. And I think we're uh, learning that song uh, quite well. I thought we did very well with that, even though it's a newer song to us. I run to Christ. Psalm 119, Psalm 119. I did fail to mention an announcement. There is choir practice this evening after the service. And uh, just to mention uh, to uh, choir members of that practice this evening uh, after the service tonight. And uh, apologize, I forgot to mention that uh, earlier. Psalm 119, we have been looking at what has uh, been uh, nicknamed the Mount Everest of the Bible. And we have worked our way stanza by stanza through this psalm. And uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed preparing and uh, delivering these messages. And I hope that they have been an encouragement to you. Derek, I appreciate reading uh, him reading this stanza. And verses 121 through 128. Once again, the Hebrew uh, letters of the alphabet, letters of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, form an acrostic for each stanza. And the Hebrew letter is A-I-N, Ain. And there is, from what I understand, there is no um, English letter that parallels this particular Hebrew letter. So it has a unique, excuse me here, it has a unique sound. Uh, a unique uh, way in which it is used in the Hebrew alphabet uh, that does, does not correspond one-to-one uh, with the English language. Nevertheless, this is the Hebrew letter that forms the acrostic in the original language in the Hebrew that would begin each verse of this stanza. We see, first of all, tonight, the desire for a good response to just actions. The desire for a good response to just actions. There in verse 121, we... Read, I have done judgment and justice, leave me not to mine oppressors. Here is the psalmist, we're again assuming it is David. David being a leader, having been a shepherd boy and then a leader in the army, uh, and then eventually king. He understood what it was like in leadership to have to Submit policies or enforce policies, to write policies, to give decrees, to administer justice and judgment. So here he is saying, I have done judgment and justice. He is saying, I have tried to lead fairly, equitably, with good discernment, with wisdom, and with righteousness. We know David had failure in his life. We know that he had feet of clay, like all of us. He was a sinner. He did great things for God. He was a man after God's own heart. He repented of his sin, but nevertheless, he did have failure. Yet, overall, David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Overall, his life characterized a life that was after the heart of God. He sought the heart of God. He desired to love the Lord and please the Lord with his life, though he did have failure. So David is saying here that he has done judgment, he has done justice, he has tried to lead fairly, he has tried to lead with righteousness. And it can be disappointing, it can be frustrating for leaders who have made an obvious effort to lead fairly, kindly, justly, and yet to suffer rebellion, maybe to be criticized unnecessarily or unfairly. And it can be hard sometimes in leadership because there are times of criticism, there are times of challenge, there are times of resistance and sometimes rebellion. 
David experienced that even with some of his own children. David knew what it was like to face that, and he's saying, leave me not to mine oppressors. David is saying, I have tried to lead in such a way that honors the Lord, that pleases the Lord. Lord, spare me from rebellion. Spare me from those who would bring unfair criticism and bring oppression to my life and to my attempt to rule and to provide godly leadership. I remember recently hearing someone say that there are a lot of football players who want to be the quarterback. And this particular individual said, if you want to be the quarterback, then you have to be able to lead like what a quarterback is expected to lead. You have to be out in front. You have to take the criticism. You have to run the, you have to do the the media interviews after the game, before the game. You have to be, in a sense, the spokesman at times for the team. And a lot of the pressure is on you. You're in the spotlight. And sometimes the entire activity of the game, the entire outcome of the game will all be put on your shoulders. So if you want to be the quarterback, be ready to take the responsibility. And I have often found young people, sometimes it's with adults as well, they want to be leaders. They want to be the one out in front. They want to get the spotlight. They want to get all of the popularity and the fame and the fortune. But they don't want any challenges. They don't want any criticism. They don't want any responsibility that comes with leadership. And we have to take on that responsibility as leaders. In the case of our homes, as fathers, as a husband, even as a mom, as a wife, there's a leadership role that you have in the home. Leadership is ultimately influence. Leadership comes with responsibility. We have to trust the Lord when we are in a place of responsibility and leadership. And sometimes... Leadership is thrust upon us, isn't it? Sometimes we are not even necessarily looking for it. We're not necessarily planning. We're not necessarily trying to work our way. I know there are worldly ways in which people are clamoring and fighting dog-eat-dog and trying to climb the corporate ladder or whatever the sayings are, and they are clamoring, trying to get to the top. Then they get there, and they have no character, no place in that position, though they want the title, they don't want the responsibility. And David, having accepted God's call, God's leading in his life, and now as a leader, having to administrate justice and judgment, trying to do so fairly, equitably, with righteousness, with God's wisdom, he realizes that there is a fair amount of challenges that come. There's criticism. There is sometimes unfair criticism. And David is praying, he's seeking God's word for wisdom, seeking God's word for the promises of God to help him and the principles and the commands of God to give him the strength and the wisdom to navigate through some of the challenges, some of the criticism, some of the difficulties that come with leadership. And the the psalmist desires that as he leads, that those under him would lead would, excuse me, would follow his leadership and not become oppressors. And it is a joy to any leader when he leads or she leads 
with equity, with righteousness, in loving the people and serving the people below uh, him or her in the position of leadership that they have, it is a delight to a leader's heart when people respond with kindness, with a right spirit, though there might be some suggestions, uh, constructive criticisms that come when they are done in the right spirit and they're done with not an attitude of rebellion and trying to take the leader down, it does the leader's heart a world of good to know that those whom he or she are leading are responding in a way that honors and pleases the Lord, that they are not trying to be oppressors and be rebellious. David said, I have done the best I could with the Lord's help to lead the people. He didn't lead like a dictator. He didn't lead like a selfish king who only thought of himself and of his power. He ultimately knew that God would be his judge. God would be the ultimate judge. And every leader has to come to that place if he's going or she's going to be a good leader. It could be a teacher in a classroom. It could just be a mom or dad in the home. It could be a father. It could be in a place of management, a boss. But every leader ultimately has to come to the point and realize that God is the ultimate judge. That God is ultimately the one who is going to set the account who's going to administer the rewards or who's going to distribute the rewards, who is going to bring into account, who is going to evaluate our life and determine if we have been good stewards and if we have been faithful. You know, spiritual confidence in leadership is, awfully, is often directly related to our moral integrity. Oftentimes, our confidence in our leadership is directly related to our relationship with the Lord. And it is a shame when a spiritual leader falls. It could be in a church where a pastor has not been faithful in his relationship with God and maybe with his wife. And there is great catastrophe in the church as the pastor has to step down from a position of leadership. And there's rarely ever just one act. It's usually a pattern that has developed that eventually leads to a great fall, a stepping over that line of going over that cliff. But there's usually signs, there's usually evidence ahead of time. So even if it's not in a place of spiritual leadership in the sense of a leadership role in the church, whether it be in the home or even at your job as maybe a manager or a boss or wherever God has you in a place of influence, our confidence in our work, our confidence before the Lord comes as a direct, in, in direct connection to our moral integrity, to our living by a life of principle. And many of you are tested weekly with this. There are challenges in your workplace, in places that you go from week to week or from day to day, and there's temptations to compromise, to break principles, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to bend the rules, to go around someone else's back, to undermine and undercut. Sometimes there might even be a direct policy or a order to go about a business a certain way, and you have to say, I can't do it that way, or that is against what I believe as a 
follower of Jesus Christ. Those are tough things that we sometimes have to address, that we have to confront in leadership. In the psalmist, he says in verse 122, Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. So we see that the psalmist, in a place of leadership, administering justice and judgment, knowing that there could be challenges, there could be criticism, desiring that those who are under his leadership be good followers, be obedient followers, as he has tried to lead fairly and equitably and not as a dictator, understanding though there may be challenges that come, he says his surety, his confidence for good must come from God, from his word. So as we're in places of influence and leadership, places where we're sometimes challenged, we have to find again our confidence in the Lord. The word surety means a pledge. He is saying, be my confidence for good. Help me as I trust you, as I place my confidence in you, as I have to administer this way, I have to make this decision, I have to go about what I believe is right in this situation I'm going to trust the Lord, and though there may be criticism, though there may be some challenges, I'm going to trust God that there's going to be faithful followers, and with God's help, we're going to see righteousness enacted, righteousness produced, righteousness prevail, and God will be honored. And there may be some people along the way who kind of drop out because they don't want to follow along. They don't want to do it the right way. That's... Sometimes the biggest challenge is when we want 100% and there are people who drop off and say, I'm not going to do it that way. You want to follow that policy? You want to be a goody-goody two-shoes as it was in school? You, you want to be one of those kinds of people? Don't you know that we have progressed, that we do it this way now? All kinds of challenges that come. And here's the psalmist saying, my principal... The principle for my life, for living, is the word of God. God is my confidence. He is my confidence for good. Let not the proud oppress me. We see in 1 John 3 and verse 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Speaking of a clean conscience, a heart right with God of integrity. When we do our job right with honesty, with the right philosophy and desire to please the Lord and to live by the principles of the word of God, when we treat people right and we exhibit the fruit of the spirit, then we can have confidence before the Lord that we have done our very best before God to live out, to administer, to rule, to lead in such a way that God is glorified, that God is honored, that his principles are followed and we trust with ultimately our confidence in the Lord that he will work this out for our good and ultimately for his glory and that even through this leadership experience this leadership challenge this leadership victory it is ultimately God who must receive the glory and that even through that God is my confidence for good he is even in that leadership responsibility working out his will and conforming us to the image of Christ. It's, it's, it's been challenging at times in the ministry. 
either as a school principal or as a pastor or as assistant pastor, it is challenging at times because I want 100%. I want somebody who I know is struggling, who is hit and miss at church, who I know is not faithful, they're uh, not doing well with their life. I am burdened for them. I want them to see victory in their life. I want them to be faithful. I want our young people to love the Lord. I want them to not get pulled by this world and to see God use them as future leaders, whether as a husband or a wife or in a management or as a boss or wherever God calls them. And we have to find our confidence in the places of leadership that God has called us. We have to find our confidence for good in the Lord. So the desire for a good response to his just actions. And then we see the psalmist making a plea for God's mercy and for personal understanding. Verses 123 through 125. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation. This is an interesting phrase. It has to do with eager anticipation, weary from watching, an intense desire to see. So, again, I'm going to use my wife as an illustration with her eye and having had the surgery, and it comes up regularly with the scar tissue and the intensity that she has to use her eyeball results in a soreness, an aching. You never thought that your eye affected the other part of your skull and all that around there, but it has an ache sometimes even into the inner part of, uh, of her of her, uh, her face. That little scar tissue from that surgery still has that kind of an effect that just goes to show the sensitivity of our eyes, the strain. Some of you work with screens a lot, and you know what the eye strain is like. And some people have done different things, and they have blue filters maybe on your phone. I hope that you turn your blue filter on on your phone. But it's interesting, even in some of the studies of the brain, they talk about the blue lights and the effect it has on the brain and people who play video games or on their screens too late into the night and how that can affect the, uh, or overstimulate the brain. There's different studies. But the, the point is that our eyes, they feel strained. They feel fatigue. It doesn't seem to, see, doesn't seem to be quite the same as maybe other uh, muscles of, and, and things of our body, but our eyes have a strain and they can be weary. And the psalmist is saying, I have sought for the Lord with such intensity, with such strain. He is saying that with eager anticipation, I am weary from watching. So it's an interesting phrase that I hope that this helps a little bit in our understanding that we need God's instruction in our work, our waiting, and our watching. How many times have we watched something with great intensity that maybe we get tears in our eyes, we get that fatigue in our eyes, we get that strain, and we become weary of watching, we become, we become weary in watching. And sometimes we feel like that in the Christian life. We are watching, we are working, we are waiting, and it is sometimes wearisome, but it is never exasperating. It is never with futility. I don't know if you've ever had a package or if you've ever had a child that wants a package. 
And nowadays we have FedEx and DHL and UPS and United Snail Postal Service. Sorry, there's a few of you that are postal service workers. I apologize. Um, but uh, um, snail mail, they call it. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> you have all these ways in which we can get packages. Amazon, they even have their own vehicles now. On and on it goes. And sometimes there's that package that you are just desperately wanting. You ever ordered something last minute and you have a deadline coming up? Isn't that an awful feeling? You forgot to order something. You've got to have it. None of the stores have it. And you are hitting that button and you are hoping and praying and you are waiting and you are checking your tracking number and it's 10 stops away and you get that notification on your phone and you know that you are down to the final minutes and hours before you have to have that and there's a strain, there's an eager anticipation, we're almost weary. And then the package comes late or it comes broken or there's something wrong with it. Well, in our watching, in our waiting, in our working, in the service of the Lord, in our obedience, it's never with futility. God never sends a broken package. He's never off time. He never sends a tracking number that says, oh, there's been a delay. Wasn't that the case all the time? It seems like in 2021, every time you'd order something, there would be some supply chain issue. I remember we ordered something one time. I didn't realize it was coming from literally mainland China. I didn't pay any attention to when it was ordered. And it seemed like it took two months. And we kept checking and checking and checking. And it would say, oh, it's still in Shanghai or something. <laughs> you know? And eventually we got the package. And we were even beginning to wonder if we had uh, been ripped off. But God, God never sends a package to our life, if I can use that in, in reverence and respect, that is bad for us. As we read in James 1, every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. The psalmist is helping us to remember that. Verse 124, deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy and teach me thy statutes. We need the mercy of God, don't we? He even deals with this fact that there is a need for understanding, discernment. I am thy servant, give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. We ask of God, James 1, 5, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. We know that there are these challenges that come in life. We know that there is a great need for understanding, for discernment. Literally, even the word can mean cunning. Having an expertise. Uh, maybe the idea would be of being able to cut a piece of wood or metal precisely with great degree of accuracy. Being able to use good prudence to accurately assess with God's help and apply the truths of God's word to our situation. And the psalmist is saying, I need that. I need that mercy of God because I can't drum up enough wisdom on my own. I can't do this on my own. The psalmist, you almost get the sense that he is saying, I am thy servant. You see it again in verse 24, thy servant. You see mercy. He is pleading for this understanding and he knows it has to come through God's testimonies, through God's word. 
through God's declaration of himself. And the psalmist is once again pleading with humility for the Lord to give him wisdom, to help him navigate through the situation, to use good discernment. He doesn't want to make a bad judgment. He doesn't want to displease the Lord. He wants to honor the Lord, and he comes with a heart of humility, asking and pleading for God's mercy. And then we come, finally, to this last section of this stanza. And we see the psalmist longing to see God's work. Longing to see God work. Verse 126, it is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. We should long to see God work against evil. We see the phrase, made void thy law. They have made void thy law, verse 126. Does this say, does this mean that the evil, the sin, the wicked, they have some sort of power to break, in a sense, God's law in its principle, in its attribute, in its very revelation of God's character? No. The psalmist is saying their voiding of God's law is their refusal to submit to God's law. It is them denying God's authority, God's power to rule over them. The psalmist is saying in verse 126, it is time for thee, Lord, to work. They will not obey your law. They will not submit to your rule, to your lordship. They continue to deny your authority. But God, do your work. Sometimes this comes out in the form of imprecatory psalms. Not specifically here in this uh, psalm do we refer to it as an imprecatory psalm. But there are times where the evil is so overwhelming, it seems, and so great on every headline, on every possible channel, from every, seem, from every it seems like from every angle, there's nothing but evil and they deny God's authority, they continue to try to solve all these problems of the world in man's futile ways, and we are like the psalmist saying, God, please do your work against this evil. And God ultimately is and will. And we rest in that promise. We rest in that truth. So what is our job in combating this evil? We do everything that we can by God's strength, to combat the evil of our day. And that begins with our own personal lives, our own personal holiness. We also have to take on, in a sense, in the spiritual battle, this culture, this world in which we live. It's, it's clear that there are necessary actions that we have to take. Sometimes they're in the protection of our own home and Limiting certain kinds of entertainments and not being in certain places and instructing our children to not go with certain people and to not be in certain places on the internet. And we set up boundaries and we give them principles to live by and we pray and plead and 
ask for God to help them take ownership of those principles and to live out those truths. We do everything that we can in our own personal lives and in our homes and our families. We battle the culture in our workplaces and there's a spiritual conflict all around. And we must not ignore the fact that there is a spiritual conflict. Again, this world looks at everything from an education standpoint, an economic standpoint. Now we have the environmental standpoint with climate change. On and on the world goes with all of its lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, all of its empty solutions. And it just seems like more and more we turn to the government, don't we? It just seems more and more like people just want another government solution. What was the latest government agency that was just formed to help reduce gun violence in America? Another government agency? Really? How many problems has the government solved so far? Have they solved poverty? Have they solved the moral evils of our land? We could go on and on. We could be here the rest of the night talking about all the futility of the government. And yet it seems like people look more and more to the government for solutions. But our battle is ultimately a spiritual battle. Our weapons are ultimately spiritual, not carnal. We fight, in a sense, this spiritual battle. We fight it with the truth, the armor of God, spiritual discipline, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't fight with carnality, with vengeance, with obnoxious behavior. (laughs) Can I go on a little bit of a rabbit trail here and talk about some of the obnoxious, I would just come right out and say, non-Christ-like behavior that is done in an attempt to promote conservative principles, to fight the woke culture. Anybody heard of Westboro Baptist Church? Is that the way we fight? Is there not a problem with homosexuality in our culture? Yes. But do we go out and hold picket signs at the funerals for military personnel and call homosexuals names on our signs? Is that how we fight the battles in our culture? There's even a movement now And I'm just going to go ahead and mention his name. I don't always mention names. Sometimes I do. But I'll just go ahead and mention his name. Some of you might recognize his name. But there's this Andrew Tate mentality. That we fight the woke culture by saying some very, okay, true things. But doing it in such a way that is, can I just say, downright obnoxious. And at times just very rude and crude. And when a person like an Andrew Tate is involved in some very questionable and probably also illegal activities that involve women and some not-so-moral choices, can he maybe state some things that are very true about the male gender and the need for men and the need for strength and the need for men to be men? He can say some true things. But is he ultimately fighting evil when he's got his own moral issues and there's no grounding in the principles of the word of God and no glory being given to our Savior? 
But there is that movement, and there's a powerful movement that's capturing the hearts and minds of some of our young men. And even some of these adults that are <clears throat> championing right causes, but going about it in some very, can I just say, rude and uncouth ways. We're to speak the truth in love. Yes, we don't have to be doormats. We are in a spiritual battle. We're in a fight against evil. And we go through every means that we can legally and properly and biblically to address these issues but we have to be careful that we don't resort to carnal tactics. And we're trusting God to deal with the oppressors because he's ultimately in control. And we're going to keep with our security team and we are going to continue to do everything that we can to be prepared. It's not that I'm trying to be a fear monger or a naysayer or a doomsdayer, but we are going to make every effort legislatively. There's been a recent battle with the LEAP project and another government project and dealing with water and makes, you all, makes us all want to just say fooey with the government sometimes, right? It seems like they're always doing something that's conniving that uh, is undermining or is questionable or untrustworthy. It doesn't mean that we start a mutiny <laughs> and we form some sort of militia and we go out and we start breaking all the laws of the land and overturning cars and breaking windows and looting buildings and on and on. That's the tactics of people that we are obviously very concerned about, right? Is that the way we resort? By burning down abortion clinics and killing abortion doctors? And various other unbiblical means to try to resist the evil? We ultimately trust God as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We take, yes, the opportunities, the abilities, and with reasonable biblical attempts and efforts, we follow God's will and we rely upon him and his timing and with his strength and by his wisdom. We do our parts, but it begins with our own personal life, our own hearts, and our own personal holiness. I don't want to get, I don't want to go over time, but it frustrates me, frustrates me when we have conservative politicians who put a certain letter in front of their name. And they're involved in some of the most moral scandals. They're fighting for conservative principles. We would vote for them most of the time. And we see them out there behaving like teenagers in a movie theater, doing things that are clearly immoral, and divorcing their spouse and behaving like the very people that they criticize and that we say are bringing society down. But they highlight themselves as conservatives and align themselves with a certain political party. Other scandals of like and similar type of nature. And I think, how can we make a difference? How can there be a movement for righteousness when the people who are championing righteousness are involved in the muck and the filth and doing the same dirty deeds that they are accusing the others of. That actually the others are fine with, but they call us hypocrites. And then what does that do with our testimony? Especially when we call ourselves Bible-believing Christians. And Peter talks about that. He talks about not being a part of the filth of society. You want to change society. You want to reach the society with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately what changes society. But then you participate just like the worldly society around you that you criticize, that you complain about.
And then we end up making no difference. We are asking God to work against the evil, but make sure we are doing our part personally in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own homes, and living by the principles of the word of God. The psalmist longs to see God work, to deepen our love for the word of God. Therefore, I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Maybe that's one of the reasons that there isn't a change, because believers don't love the word of God. They love mammon gold more than they love God's word gold. And the priorities are all messed up. The psalmist desires to see God work to produce holiness in our personal lives. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. We spent some time last week talking about vain thoughts. I won't go into all of what I did last week, but the idea, again, of allowing God to produce within us the fruit of the Spirit, that goes a long way with good communication, willingness to love people, to help people, to meet their needs where they need the help, ultimately, the gospel, the ministry of God's word in their lives, and applying those biblical truths. But it begins again with God producing the holiness in our own lives as we yield to him, as we love God's word, as we concern all things, that being his precepts, to be right. And we hate every false, every vain, every lying, every skeptical, every carnal way. We hate that, but we love God and we love his word. and We cherish it and we live by it. Three principles from this stanza that I hope have been a help to us tonight. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this stanza, this truth. Thank you, Lord, for your word that helps us. As we live in such a wicked and evil world, and Lord, at times we become just discouraged and even almost exasperated, but Lord, we have to keep coming back to your commandments, your precepts, your testimonies, and plead and long for you to work. And maybe we need to look within, first of all, and see, maybe we are not living like we should, and we're not allowing you to work in our hearts, and yet we want you to work in others. And Lord, maybe we need to take care of some things in our own hearts and lives first. But Lord, help us to long for your word, to see you work, to see you do a great work in our own hearts and in our midst, in our church, and in our families. And Lord, you receive the glory for it. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to have the same heart and desire of the psalmist and to love your word like uh, even more, I should say, even more than gold. Than much fine gold, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Lord, may we have that desire for your word and to go out and live it this week for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek's going to